Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Wurzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind the scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor, an upstart entrepreneur, or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at jwerzak on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video, so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. My conversation today is with Mihul Patel, founding partner at Newcrest Image. It was such an amazing conversation. This guy has a wild story from growing up and working in a hotel to building a massive hotel M&A platform for a reputation that is tremendously rich in values, culture, good ethics. They've done over 300 transactions. We discuss his process for buying a hotel, how he sells a hotel, little tips and techniques to drive the most value on an exit. We talk about the 95 hotels that they built. We talk about the strategies that their company is investing in today, and also the new business verticals that they've created in this post-pandemic environment, having sold their entire company essentially during COVID and now having to rebuild that again with big M&A. We also close with Mihul's experience buying and owning a bank and doing it his way. Please enjoy my conversation today with Mahul Patel. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's really my great honor to be part of this podcast. It's an honor to actually have you. I love talking with people that are building amazing companies, taking risks, and people that I admire. So I think it's going to be a fun conversation. And where I wanted to start today is a common theme that I see amongst a lot of people in the hotel industry, and that's growing up in the industry. Some people that I know lived in hotels, some people that I know worked in hotels from a very early age, but that happens to be a common set of circumstances for a lot of successful owners that I know. So why don't we use that to kind of start with your story about how you got into hospitality? Sure. Thank you for having me on this podcast today. I'm really excited. So my journey began 32 years ago. I was 13 years old. I came into this country with my dad and mom. And pretty much uh, all the, I always define myself as an accidental hotelier. When you came into this country, my parents didn't have education. We didn't have place to stay. And the first thing our uncle got us a motel to live in on it and my parents cleaned the room. So that's where I got first exposure of what motel looks like. And my early exposure was when you come into the U.S., you barely had a little money to start your life. And we didn't speak any English. And so my dad, mom, and was cleaning a room. I went to high school. I started ninth grade. That was my first high school experience. And slowly I was helping on the weekend, my parents cleaning room on it. And then honor thought I could help them on the furnace because I was speaking a little bit English in for six months. 
And our communication was, first experience was very simple. King bear and double bear, $25 or $30. Here is a key. That's it. There was no other sign of communication. There is nothing. Just show them the room. It's outside and nothing. We didn't have reward program. We didn't have key. We didn't have internet. We didn't have anything. It's just like simple transaction. You smile, give key and take $25 or $30 and say, okay, this is it. And that's the environment I grew up. And pretty much customer service was really friendly, really humble. You know, you look at the guest, you greet at them and just give them, you know, key and take the money. That was a transaction. There was no other interaction beside. So that was my first experience in growing up in a motel, living in a motel. We didn't offer any breakfast time to time Saturday. If the owner felt good, they said, okay, I bought donut. Here is a coffee you could brew. And that's the environment I grew up in. So, you know, looking back today, the world has changed. The whole industry has changed. And I have changed part of that journey, to be honest with you. So in what ways do you think those early experiences impacted you throughout your career to what you're doing today? I think I worked every single aspect of a job. I work pretty much with, there was a time I worked 24 hours looking at the customer, you know, the the needs and wants back in those days was very simple. Customer just needed a room. As long as it was clean, customer didn't say a word about it. What I experienced myself personally and with my family was really working hard, doing laundry, cleaning guest room, doing swimming pool, landscaping, and repair maintenance. So pretty much we did it everything. And if there was a water leak, we kind of fixed it over one. There was no, you know, back in those days, this is going back to 1990. You didn't have rarely available all the trades and people didn't call right away all the trades. So I was exposed to firsthand experience, fixing those, really seeing it firsthand experience, how to get stuff done. And that was give me a resource and knowledge and expertise, what I have become today because the foundation was really strong. Because all I did was really hard work, but seeing the first ten is how is the basic one on one of motel? I wouldn't even call hotel, but one on one of motel business. And if you can master one on one, because you know at night audit you didn't have any computer system, you barely had a phone system, and that was it. You had a calculator, and that's it. If you can manage with that, and we operated a hotel and still ran full occupancy, you mastered the trade at that point. And now you look at what we have and we're still kind of saying wish we had more of it wish we had more of it so i think the foundation was really strong is learning all the basic department and really doing it yourself sometimes we have a department but have you haven't done it yourself it's really hard to teach somebody else when you don't know what to do a hundred percent i grew up doing the same thing i remember people on my team still today that were forcing me to like scrape goose poop off the sidewalks or do all these fun things. We ran through all of the different jobs in housekeeping and engineering. And it really gives you a perspective that many others don't find. And I think for me, and I want to hear your view, but it's been even more so influential on the acquisitions and the investment side, because it allowed me to think about the underwriting and the deal side and the business side in a different way than if I hadn't had any operational background as a kid. Yeah, I mean, so I think I'll give you, I have done three or four level of transaction. So the first one, my experience was we bought a 16-room motel in Lawton, Oklahoma. This is back in 1993, first motel. I went to see it. 
with my dad and the owner wanted $175,000. We looked at his revenue was 60,000 a year. Okay, we talked to him, he said, seller finance, give me $20,000 down payment. He wrote on one piece of paper, promissory note, and that was the transaction, $20,000. Wow. And that was one, one day closing. That, he just wrote, he went to local attorney and got a one page promissory note and said, hey, you owe me, you know, $160,000. You pay me $20,000. And that was a transaction. I bought it first in that motel right on the spot when I went there. Because, the you know, it was very friendly saying, this is your monthly payment, blah, blah, blah. So that was my first 10 experience. I would say a year later, I bought a motel from Motel 6. That was, okay, they had their attorney acquisition disposition team. I learned a little bit more experience. It was a Motel 6. I had to de-identify the brand and they didn't want to keep Motel 6. So I kept it independent. So I learned a little bit more understanding how to buy a brand and then how do you de-identify and all that, which I didn't understand back in those days, which was fine. And so that was the second experience. Then third experience, I was buying a portfolio of three hotels. So that got a little more elevated to understand how do you really underwrite now? Because the seller only wanted to sell all or nothing, all three. Portion was a some sort of debt, debt CMBS. This is in 2000. Portion was seller finance and portion was all cash. So very complex transaction. And underwriting was just fine on it because it was a cash flowing asset. The owner wanted to retire that really worked out great for me. And I think today the acquisition has become the most challenge what we have done in the last 10 years, I would say. A lot of MA, I mean, we bought 25 La Quinta from the Blackstone, two tranches of it. So we bought 50 La Quinta. Then last year we bought 90 hotels and looking at those transactions. So everything is done on desktop. When we bought the, uh, I think six, seven years ago, I bought La Quinta, we visited every single property. And today we bought 90, we probably visited probably 50% of them and rest of it were desktop. And so today the, the conviction has become, you underwrite certain stuff and certain stuff, you look at what's on the physical property and then you have to really pull your secret sauces. How are you going to turn on this asset? Because there is always a story, there is a left and right story by seller, the operator, and then you have your story. So there's three different stories, and it is your own conviction, what can you do with that asset? And so the underwriting has become facts, like, okay, if you cannot get anything wrong, wrong on the facts, you better check out all the facts, and then you really have to roll up the sleeve. And like we often talk about it, when we buy property, first thing we do is clean up seven-day plan, pretty much are you know pretty much your physical appearance what customer wants and needs okay if customer has, has wants okay what are their wants for it can we can we you know comply with that and their needs are pretty much you know basic necessity can we get the basic right on them their needs on it clean breakfast you know clean room good customer service good exterior cleaning all the lights working so you know when we acquire a hotel we pretty much the first seven days our corporate office, we would say we all need to be on property, making sure people, process, and technology, all these three elements should be properly set up. You cannot make error on that first seven days of onboarding new team. And so that has gone a lot on it. And this just didn't happen, Jake, overnight. It took us 15, 20 years to learn all this. And it was a complete evolution of learning one process after other and say this would be a better because we're learning as we go through different salary and different management 
and different market has taught us a different way of doing certain stuff. So it was a, you know, I, I kind of said, be a student of ongoing. Don't say that you have settled on education and learning. So that is kind of a, our thesis is pretty much you, when you have facts, don't underestimate the facts. Don't underthink that they're profitable. You're going to be profitable. You cannot underestimate that. Things can change overnight once you buy the property. And so that has been a secret sauce for us is really taking a laser focus approach on it. And once you buy, it's your problem. You bought somebody's problem, so you have to start solving your own problem because once you buy somebody's problem, it's your problem. It's not their problem anymore. So take it, uh, you know, take it right for it. And uh, one of the things I learned is never have any expectation. When you buy something, don't expect that seller's going to give you best property, best performing, blah, 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 all that stuff. Never have any expectation. So you don't have any regret. You just feel like this is what I bought for it and this is what I bargained for it. And you would be much happier with that acquisition. So talk to me about what it's like to buy a portfolio of hotels from Blackstone, because a lot of people that aren't a competing institution of that size might feel intimidated, might feel pressure, might feel like they're missing something. Break down that transaction for us and let us know what you learned from it. Sure. I think Blackstone is one of the best seller. We have probably done more than 50 transactions with them. They're the most ethical company out there. Our dealing has been very straightforward. Once you have a call, I think they're going to tell you, here is what our wants are. We want you to go hard, non-refundable. That's the deal. Or they'll give you DD period. One of the either in every transaction. And they'll give you 60, 90 days to close. And that is the bargain you do. And they'll tell you up front, here's the war room. Here's access agreement. Here's the PSA. Here's reps and warranty. And if you can live with that, perfectly fine. Each of their assets is run by brand or third-party management. And it is as good as going to be anything out there, but they're the most ethical company out there. And normally when they're selling something, their end of their fund cycle or end of their disposition strategy or the property needs a pip. Most likely it's property needs improvement. Those are the three scenarios we have been involved on buying the property in which we were okay with it. We knew that we had to do a renovation. So I think that was our experience, but I think they were the most easiest guys to deal with it because they'll tell you upfront and you don't have to go back and negotiate something on the back end. And that has been our experience. They're the most easy to deal with it and they leave you alone. Once you sign PSA, you just follow through the process. And it is just like they have asset manager. They just give you the data, whatnot. And I think it's a fun process working with them. I mean, you know, we as a new crest image bought 300 hotel and probably 25% of the asset we bought from them. And our experience has been such a great to deal with them. Recently, you've been buying portfolios of hotels. Do you think that to some extent there's less risk in doing that versus buying one-off hotels? No, the m sounds really good when you buy larger portfolio. We bought a Starwood hotel portfolio for 45 hotel. And sometimes what happens is when you look at the 45 hotel, CBRE brokered the deal for us. They had the war room. But you have to have a good capabilities on your side, meaning best attorney who understand 20 different states' law and different jurisdiction. Make sure they understand that. Uh, you have to have a good third-party reports, be a property condition, zoning, 
environmental, all that you must have a good one so you can really do a proper job. Then you have to hire a good appraisal because you want to allocate asset per hotel, not just on aggregated portfolio. Then you need to make sure you have good surveyors, so make sure there is no encroachment on all 45 hotels. Then you bring in CPA to make sure you have proper cost allocation done on each property. And then you bring in lender to say, okay, how are you going to divvy up? You could have one lender. We acquired in last 12 months where we had to divvy up six different lenders. So DV up different six lender. And when you buy that, normally you cannot close all that in one day. Six lender, it's very hard to quote, no matter how much you plan on it. We tried it and we were we had to break it up in three package, but we were very successful. And then you have to have the best title company who can really become the master recipe because you have six different lender demanding something. You have seller demanding something and they have a lender demanding something and you have buyer demanding something. And so it is a very big task when you talk about taking under. And then on top of that, you bring in third-party management, like we brought in Ambridge Manage for us. So we brought in Ambridge, liquor consultant. Then we brought in a bunch of other consultants. So now you're talking about at least 50, 60 people team who you're trying to close a transaction on it. And normally you have 60 to 75 days to close a transaction on it. The transaction I'm talking about, it took us 75 days to close. And so you're instantly having a call and everything you're going through it. And in the middle of that, you deal with risk management. Okay, how many loss run, workers come, ongoing claims, zoning issues, brand surveys. So you just like, we have a massive checklist that we build on it and dedication team. We're small team, like 12 people team who works on investment now, but we have become really good at doing this stuff because what we have done over the years, we just learned that you have to look at every single light. Going back to my facts, you cannot underestimate the facts, but it requires a good good amount of team to lift off a portfolio like that. So it's not sometimes who can do that and who cannot do that part. Many times if you don't have the experience or many times your team is not experienced, you will fail miserably because there is just so much goes on in different jurisdictions. And so much legal documents and so much of like formation of 45 LLC, setting up. It's it just a lot of time. Everything you do is times 45, right? So when you buy one hotel, imagine doing 45 times everything again. 45 franchise agreement, make a franchise application 45 times. Opening 45 bank accounts, opening 45 credit card merchants account. So it was just a tedious process. And... Our team just suck it up and said, okay, this is what we have to do. And we set up allocation of time. And it is an instant, insane amount of time that the team has to put on it compared to one-off. So sometimes when you see a portfolio, large institution can buy that because they're able to bring in, outsource everything. Or they have a, in their team, there's expertise because that's what they do. And so that's my learning lesson. It's really hard. It's not just anyone can just say, you know, I want to buy 20 hotel or 30 hotel. It takes a lot of time and effort and thinking goes on. And your law firm has to have a big enough appetite to do all that. Because just to give you, once you sign PSA, you have to do a title objection 45 of them within 10 days. And so how do you find a law firm who's capable enough to do that in 45, you know, 10 days? So we just gone through so much of timeline and deadline and everything you have to make. So it is a 
a great deal of challenge, but if you can overcome it, makes your enterprise the best. And the most important learning lessons for your team is your team is you're grooming your team to be a best at it, right? We want, we took it as a new crest team. If we can make our team best of the best, then we can put up against with any other team, any of the large institution, and we'll be as good as anybody. So I think that was my learning experience going through those portfolio acquisitions. I didn't hear you mention capital as one of the biggest challenges acquiring a portfolio of 45 hotels. So how does your capital raising process come into play in a portfolio acquisition like that? So we, uh, you know, being a family entrepreneurial, uh, Newcrest Image is family one. So everything we bought last year, we were able to buy everything on our balance sheet or family capital. So it was very easy for us. We have more than 30 bank, regional banks that we have borrowed over 15, 20 years ago. So any given time, we have a debt facilitate available between five to $700 million based on the lender capabilities and, you know, dip, you know, depending how much we have borrowed and how much we have left available. And so borrowing debt was not difficult. Debt. We were able to get 70% debt pretty easily and we had our equity. So that was really easy. And then capital plan, we allocated, you know, certain amount of capital. We said, okay, we bought 45 hotel. We would allocate X dollar for property improvement plan and others we would disposition an asset that doesn't make sense for our enterprise. So we sold like half the asset and half of them we kept it and we would read out, you know, you know, go through a real, you know, renovation plan and reorganization plan of those assets. So that's how we were able to capitalize on it. But, uh, you know, the last six months has become very difficult, even for guys like us. We bought another 16 hotel portfolio from SVC. And the lender were really wary. And the reason is we had a ground lease. A couple of them had back of house union. And lender looked at it. Well, I didn't want to go to New York or I didn't want to go to Ohio or I didn't want to go to Chicago or certain places because the lender were brainwashed with the headline, Chicago crime, Philadelphia, uh, Pittsburgh has its own issues going on. New York has its own issue going on. If you talk about California lenders, like, well, I don't want to go there. There's strike going on. There's, uh, you have to pay per square foot for cleaning, per guest room. And I, I mean, and lenders like, hey, if I have to take that, I don't want to deal with that. So it, it wasn't like us, but it is a third party issues. The lender had read the headline and they're like, hey, we would love to loan you in Texas, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, the friendly Sun, Sunbelt Street. But they're like, we don't want, we want to stay away from the states. And, it is a difficult, uh, you know, the way you mentioned, how do you capitalize on certain state and certain market? Because the lender has already made their mind, no matter how much you could go and explain them how good the deal is. Lenders like, I understand your deal is good, but it's not good for me if I have to take, take it back or I just don't have a good feeling in this market. With a team of 12, when you're buying a portfolio, whether it's 16 or 45, it's way harder, way more time. You're just there's no economies of scale like you described. You're just doing it more times over and over again. Who on your team, if it's not you, maybe it's you, quarterbacks the whole thing. And when you're buying that kind of portfolio, what are like the three things that you are most focused on from a diligence standpoint that you want to understand at each hotel? So normally I quarterback all the large portfolio. I'm involved heavily and I have my first, my protocol is communication. 
I want all my team on the sync level. I mean, uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, eight to nine, that is our call time. And we normally meet face to face. That is our fundamental communication. And then we talk about three things per each, pro- each hotel that you mentioned. We look at zoning and legal compliance. Is this hotel compliance today with brand, local jurisdiction, or is there any hair on it that we need to clean up? Because those two things can take you a lot of time to clean up if you have legal jurisdiction issues or anything, fire, life, safety, and all that part. And if any accident happened, you don't want it gets to be impacted. So safety and sound from legal jurisdiction is our biggest pet on it. The second one we look at is, do we understand the asset? How good of asset do we understand from my team perspective? Do we all understand the same level as we understand whether this hotel needs lift in this? Do we need to change revenue management strategy? Or do we need to change the labor? Do we need to change human capital? So we want to understand the second phase is pretty much really the deep detail of the properties. What's wrong with the property? Understand what's wrong with it so we could help solve it. But when you don't understand the problem, you, you don't know what you're solving on it. So I think the first one is always about local jurisdiction, getting the loss. Second one is understanding the root cause of the problem at the property or anything that goes wrong. And the third one is, what are we going to do? Once you know those two items, how are you going to fix it? And who's going to fix it? What is the capital needed? And get to work at it. Those are the three things has given a quick win, in my opinion. Very quick win, meaning 30 days where we see a instant change in revpar, change in you know guest expectation or guest score. We see a tremendous improvement in first 30 days just by understanding. Once you get safety out of the way, you kind of feel good about it because if safety isn't right, then you're always worried. What if something happened and guests could be injured and your hotel could be in headline, your company could be at reputation stake and you know, Hilton, Marriott, Hyatt, you kind of have to answer them. So you cannot be doing anything out there, right? So you want to make sure that <laughs> life safety compliance is number one at your, you know, mind. And then if you can fix the number two item, understand all the problem. And you know, and you know, many times you cannot solve every problem, but if you know the major problem at the property, then you kind of have a clean slate to say, guys, okay, we understand what the problem is. Let's go fix it. And we will see the quick result. And that is the motivation factor for the 12 people of team. Once they fix something, they see a quick win. They're like, okay, we could do more of it. It gives them a feel to go and do it more because they see a problem. They just got to fix it. But many times what happens is when we take on too much and just say, we have 90 days plan, we're going to do this renovation, this life is too short for that part. If you can find some quick win, the manager sees it that we're actively working corporate headquarters and the ownership is putting time and effort to have a quick fix. The general manager and his team also say, you know what, we also have to do something to quick fix. And so it, it become a good team effort. Even if you have a third party operator, like we always, you know, most of our assets are run by Embry. I mean, we have six management company run for us today, but, you know, we look at management company as our great partner in, in you know, this strategy to make sure that we're in it together, we'll help you even though it's your responsibility, but we want to make sure that we show you the new crest way of getting successful and finding a quick win. When I think of you based on how your company came up, your approach to capital, your approach to doing deals, I think of entrepreneurship and the entrepreneur's mentality. What are you doing on an asset management side that bigger firms, whether they're public or private like Blackstone, just aren't doing? And then how are you 
using Ambridge to also get into that entrepreneurial mindset to keep up with you? Because a lot of people could say, well, Ambridge is huge now. They're not entrepreneurial anymore. H- how do you instill that methodology in them? And what does, is your team doing to get an impact that the big guys couldn't get? I think that's a very good question and very challenging question, I would say. Because what we have learned, any management company, they are really good at it. You could say every single management company is so good at it. But if your property is challenged and your market is challenged, that management company gave up very easily because there's just too many fire to put out there. And that's where the that's where the entrepreneur head comes in and said, this is what I'm made for it. I'm made up for this challenge. And so we we set up here our asset management, one person for 15 hotels that work with our management company. And pretty much their job is when we buy something, we teach them, here is financial, here is third-party report, here is what this hotel has any camp charges, here is what the insurance costs. We show them everything. And then we kind of work on our budget, saying here is the budget for this hotel, and here is how the labor model is set up for this hotel, here is how the inventory is set up for it, and then here is the utility cost set up for this hotel. And then we said, okay, here are the, look at all the TripAdvisor review, look at the GSS score, and based on this, start working with management company and property levels by solving one. And generally, in Newcastle Image, we don't have a budget on CapEx. We do, but you ca- if it takes something to move a mountain, then you cannot constrain with the budget to fix it. And, and I'm not talking about millions of dollars. I'm talking about fifty dollars to $100,000 item. We give our asset manager autonomy to say, even if it's not on your budget, $50,000 to move the needle, you have autonomy to spend that and get it right. Because... If you spend money and you cannot turn around, then there's something else going on. But if money can solve the problem, then it shouldn't be a hindrance to solve it. So all of our asset manager are, are given a autonomy to say, think like it's yours. Smaller things always makes the biggest happiness on people's smile. Many times general managers want something, good landscaping, something small item. He's not looking for half a million dollar CapEx, but he's just looking for new, brand new uniform because it's been torn or he just needs something, new planters or something, you know, in the pool to uh, update something. So we give the autonomy to say, you have to enhance a small upgrade that makes a guest look like we're taking care, genuine care for the customer pretty much. And so that has been a true success. But the, the it goes back to the basic is if your asset manager doesn't know good of that property, he's not going to solve the problem. And so the goal is to teaching him like a doctor. Your asset manager has to be like doctor. And when he goes to the property, he's the doctor and saying, okay, if you have pain, let me know how, I'll give you this medicine to solve it, right? And so that is our analogy to take the doctor mentality is you have 15 patient who has some sort of problem your job is to visit each of them and solve the problem. And the only thing we can give you is capital that you could solve problem. Rest of it is you have it. You have all the people at the property. You have Embridge as your backup support to run everything. And there is nothing else we have beside tools and resources that you need from us. And so it is in your hands to turn on this asset or do better job than what we are doing it. And, you know, it's a simple philosophy, Jake. You know, it. If we are, if we are better than yesterday, the future is bright. 
We just have to do better than yesterday. And so often we tell our general manager and team, our GSS score is 65. Can we be better than 65? Can we get to 67 by two weeks? They're like, yeah, that's doable. Okay, small, you know, small victory that gives everybody some ammunition. But when you say we got to be on top 10% of the hotel, and sometimes you have mega goals that is hard to achieve, and people just lose motivation after 30 days. And running asset management business, it's really challenging because you're always out of sync. Your inventory would be out of sync. Your revenue management, you try different strategy, things have changed. New business is coming in or new demand is coming in and you didn't properly re, uh, you know, change your rates. So you missed your mark on it. Or your guest review that you're not keeping up with it and customer are bad-mouthing you. And so there's so many angles that which one do you want to tackle on it? So we kind of take a holistic approach. It start from the customer view. When the customer comes to a tool, how, how would you want to be treated if that customer was you? And if that makes you happy, then fix it first. So at least you're not the one complaining the first one. Many times we have our own people complaining. You know, I talk to my management company or I talk to my boss, but they don't want to do anything about it. I said, that is nonsense. We would none... We, we wouldn't have non-starter as a, your own complaint, right? If your general manager is complaining about something, then it's like we have a problem within our own organization. If we can solve our own people complaint, then we're solving the guest issues because he's the eyes and ears for us in view of a guest, right? To a degree, but many times we forget to solve our own complaints that we have a complaint in our own teams. And if we can solve them and make them happy, I think it just pass on to the next level in our opinion. We've talked a lot about acquisitions and I want to just focus now a little bit on what type of acquisitions are ones that based on your experience, you've learned to stay away from? What type of deals are you passing on almost immediately upon hearing about something or seeing about something? Union and ground list. Those two items, if I see it, we're running faster than anything we could. Even if they say it's an 80-year ground lease, 70-year union is back of office, we would run faster than anything else. I mean, to deal with those two, that is like permanent marriage. You have another extra wife that you have to deal with it, and you got to pay for the rest of your life for that, uh, you know, whatever comes with it. And you cannot say anything to those stakeholders. You're just by the books. You follow the books and just say, thank you. I'll just keep paying it time after time. I agree with you. So uh, ground lease for me is probably my second worst business decision. And I want to just talk a, a little bit about that one because a lot of people don't always appreciate what a ground lease is. And in reality, in a capital stack, it's just extra leverage and you're going to have to pay it. It often goes up and it makes debt a whole lot more challenging. What are the reasons why in your experience, you found ground leases to be very painful? First of all, it's it's hard for you. Like you, every time we buy an asset, we would say who, who would be our buyer. So we classify a buyer, but we said, is it institution asset? No. Is this a PE firm or family office buyer? No. Is this a entrepreneurial guys who's a larger operator? No. You're thinking about one-off guy who's not sophisticated. And so when you tell him ground lease, 
he doesn't probably understand. When you say CPI index, he doesn't understand. And then most likely he would have an unsophisticated lender. Even if he agreed to buy the property, you get convinced him and his lender would say, no, I cannot do it because if I have to buy a property and if I have to sell it, I would be in trouble. But that's where the major problem comes in. But last three years, ground lease has become attractive. We just did one two years ago, ground lease. And we put a stipulation that year five, we could buy you out. Year 10, we could buy you out. Year 15, we could buy you out at a fee. We're saying we'll pay you for the cost on it. And we were able to get a transaction that we bought a $50 million hotel in middle of pandemic, August 2020. No lender wanted to step up. The large lender didn't want to set up. So we had a one small community guy. We said, okay, why don't you give us $18 million ground lease? We put a $12 million, no, $18 million loan. Two bank, we got $8 million each. So we got $18 million loan. And then we put a $12 million ground lease on it. So that's how we got $30 million and then we put a $20 million equity. And so that's how we were able to get a deal done. But your file, we have right to pay them off for, if, uh, you know, one gap higher than what we got it on it. So which was a very lucrative deal. We're working on another deal right now, very large deal, uh, $200 million deal that we're going to put a ground lease on it because the lender are thinking it's too big of risk on construction. And nowadays, a lot of the family office and other institutions are saying ground lease are very lucrative debt element. Instead of providing a mass financing run, I'd rather just do a ground lease. And if the deal ever goes in, I can own it rest of my life. I don't have to take over or do anything. It's my property for rest of my life. And so ground lease has become a very attractive tools and resource in a capital stack today. And I think the ground lease, there are new player has come in. The old players were legacy play. If you look at New York and California, it's the the old families would ground lease and say, okay, for rest of it, it will come as a mailbox check. The richest families in New York are ground lease owners. Yes. And today the ground lease has reinvented, I would say, in a capital stacks. It's become a friendly capital stacks. And lender are saying, okay, I get it. As long as you could do five year, I'm okay with it. Even if I have to buy the property at year five, I could buy the ground lease or I could sell it to the, you know, the lender or feel, feel comfortable that there is a resolution at the end of the tunnel somehow a year 5 10 15 whatever it is so that has been a game changer in our opinion for ground lease so when you're structuring a ground lease deal for one that doesn't exist today are you always putting the option to allow the lessee the person that's leasing the ground to buy the ground lease yeah, we would we would only do a ground lease if we have 5 10 15 20 year option to buy any given time we're saying, look, we are paying you ground lease, but if I even want to break at year three, tell me your price. We got to have price on it. But what happened is the early ground lease, there is no price on it. So they're like, oh, I have to pay capital gain. I was getting a good on it. So then you get an income scenario, you bring in ground lease on it. But when you're making money, you shouldn't be factoring the, the income tax problem is my problem in a ground lease, right? So if you look at New York, like we have one ground lease in Philadelphia and we only have 17 years left. We try to buy it. It's like, well, I have big capital gain problems. So you have to pay for my capital gain. 
and it doubled <laughs> the price. We're like, well, that's not my problem. You owned it for all your life. And so that's the challenge with the rich family that you're talking about. But our strategy is, look, I would have a ground lease any given day, but I can give you minimum five-year payment, but year five, I should be able to pay, uh, you know, you know, buy the ground list or 10 or whatever, at least be a flexibility. And at that point, you have no loss on it as long as you're you're being made whole on your investment and you have calculated risk on your invest, return on investment. It should be a win-win for both of us. And that instrument has given a lender very flexibility to say, you know what, this is like a very friendly environment. Even if I have to foreclose on it, I'm able to sell this because there is a flexibility of buyout ground lease option. When you don't have the option, it's like a one-way marriage. It doesn't work. But this groundless option is two-way marriage now at any given time. As long as you give her time for divorce or whatever, it should be fine. So we love that instrument now. In 2021, most of the private equity shops and partners that that we were talking to were in heavy buy mode. They all raised a ton of capital. Capital was no issue. They were you know, paying super low cap rates for assets. They were buying trophy assets. And then you guys sold a portfolio of, I don't know, like 80 hotels or something. And now I heard recently you were quoted that interest rates are rising. You want to buy 100 hotels. So it seems like when some of the private equity firms are sitting around doing nothing, you're active. When they were buying, you're selling. What are you guys doing right now? And what do you see as the biggest opportunity today that clearly based on a lot of groups I'm talking to, I think people are probably missing. So today, what we are buying is every single asset needs CapEx. That's what we buy. Nobody wants to do CapEx. That's the number one theory we learned. None of the institution, none of the REITs, none of the PE firm has the ability to do a REIT. And everybody's looking at return investment. If I deployed my capital in a downturn market, when the market is right, I have to do a PIP. Or should I be just holding on to my cash better today? Our strategy is I want to buy today because there is no new construction happening. The secret recipe is next 36 months, 48 months, the construction, the new pipeline is very slim to nothing. Very slim to nothing. And so the way we looked at it is let's buy all the assets that people don't want to do, babe. We bring in extra team, do the renovation. And two things will happen. Either when the when we get renovation ready, our hotel's going to do better, our NOI would be better, and we can sell it at the right cap for the same guys who wanted to buy it and will make money. If we don't sell it, no supplies, we'll still make money because we would have the nicest product in the market and other people wouldn't have done renovation, we would have done the renovation. So our strategy is going everything against what people are fear of. They don't want to do renovation. We want to do renovation. They think rates are high. We think, okay, rates are high. So when we did a math on $100 million, 3%, it's $3 million of cost of doing business. So when you underwrite your return 20%, okay, it's 17% now or 18% or 16%. Does it make you or break you at 16 to 20? Probably not. Being entrepreneurial, we feel like that is a number, but the uh, the when that is the today's story telling you that you're going to make 16 18%. But reality, we sold 300 hotels. Our end math has become more than 20. So we were always wrong. Yeah, we have always wrong in our projection. 
So we're like, hey, we were wrong at 300 times. What would make us wrong the next five or 15 or 20? So the hindsight story 2020 is just a greater story of it always works out in your favor if you do what needs to be done. But, you know, what I'm sharing with you, it's not a secret sauce, right? People don't want to do renovation. We said we'll do it. And why we want to do it? Below replacement cost. There is no new supply coming up. Okay, I'm getting ready in 12, 24 months to be competing with the existing hotel owner where they they don't want to do renovation. I would have the best product. And I would be the one, my portfolio would be the first one in the market that people would want to buy. Why? It will perform better and it's fully renovated. Okay, so who wants to buy that asset? And I could commend the premium at that point. The only difference is the pain next 12 months that I'll have to go through it. And I think the interest rate is a temporary situation. We factor 24 months rate would be high. And so there is a cost of doing business that we underwrote. And then you kind of said, can I offset certain costs that I, it, it, it has gone up by interest rate, property tax, and insurance? If you look at today, PNL, our insurance, property tax, and labor cost has gone up. We said you cannot do anything in labor cost. You have to leave it alone. It's going to continue to go up. Property tax, you cannot do anything on it. That's kind of controlled by that. The only appetite is revenue management optimize your rates. Customers going to have to pay for it for nicer product. By providing service, how can you maximize your revenue? And if you can do that, then you could mitigate some of your cost that is rising 1% or 3% or 2%. That is the only way to mitigate. Because when you look at PNL, you cannot change anything, right? Your labor model, even if you reduce one key count person, today the, our team member productivity is only 75%. Our human capabilities are, if you think we were producing, we were working 40 hours and giving 100% of your effort, today that, that is probably 75 to 80%. Someone say it's 70%. So when you what you could do with 12 people, today it takes 15 people, 16 people to do it. So the way our thesis is, you cannot change your labor cost, utility cost. You could make some changes if the hotel you bought didn't have LED or you could put an auto timer, but that will only make a 2% difference on, you know, utility cost. But beside that, there's no other way you could change any mat major metrics that change your outcome on NOI. The only way you could do it is how do you play revenue management strategy? If you have the product, if you have the customer and they're willing to pay for your product, you can only maximize revenue. And we have done a good enough job in the revenue management. That changed the whole strategy on underwriting. That's what I said we were wrong pretty much every asset and the underwriting came always our, you know, under guidance, we would say 18% return, we made 22 or 25 or 30, or, you know, many times we bought a real estate, we change a brand on it, we change the use on it, or we would lose an antenna or we would do something on the property that changed the outcome of something. I love it. When you're doing, when you're evaluating these pips, a lot of people argue with me and I'm kind of in your cap. I think people will pay more money for a renovated product and a renovated room. However, a lot of people will argue that they won't. How do you think about ROI, return on investment in the CapEx projects that you're doing and in your negotiations with the brands to push back and say, hey, this is what we're doing. This is what we're not going to do. 
I think the way we have, we respect the brand. Brand is our best partner because we have long-term contract on it. But what, what the approach we took is every market is different. Every product is different. And every guest is telling us different at the property. One property, they may be okay with something, but other property, the same item, they're not okay with it. So we kind of put a puzzle. Okay, this courtyard, we're going to do guest room first and bathroom only. Some other properties, we say we're going to do the guest room and not do the bathroom. Or some property, we're going to do exterior and lobby only. So we're kind of using our dollars smartly and not putting everything up front on it. Some property, we're doing 100% renovation and finding a value engineering. How can we do a better job? That is certain. Like, look, when you look at guest room brand, they're saying seven-year soft good. I have talked to Marriott and said, that is not necessary. The drapery, I could live with 10, 12 years. Lamps, artwork. And so the many item we could say, it's good for 12 years old. And then second item, you could show it to the brand is, look at my occupancy. Since I built this hotel, I ran 68% occupancy. Product utilization hasn't reached its lifespan on it. So I would like to get, instead of seven, it should be 10-year renovation cycle. But I'm investing in other hotels. So I'm not investing in this renovation cycle hotel that's coming due, but I'm going to invest that same dollar in another hotel that's really needy for that capital. And so it has become a kind of an art and science. And to manage it better, and really keep the brand happy, but keep the guest happy. The ultimate story is, Mr. Brand, I did all this, look at the guests are happy. It's not about what I did and what I did not, but if I can keep my guests happy, did we accomplish the objective of it? Of a happy customer, they're gonna go stay more Marriott or Hilton, and they're gonna continue staying our properties. That is the ultimate outcome on it. Because today, you know, when you look at peep, peeps are done on desktop, peeps are done, the guys write something, they don't even know sometimes what they write, to be honest with you. And not to criticize brand, but you've seen it many times, they're like, everything has become a boilerplate template. Replace, every time you start, replace all the landscape, Re- do the lobby. Every, yeah. For them, it's like everything, right? Everything is like everything, <laughs> everything, everything. So Always. Uh, always, right? So you kind of have to educate the brand saying, I get it, this is a boilerplate template. We respect that your process, but let's peel the onion. What makes sense? Look at my guest is saying it. And brands like, I get it, I get it. We, we, you know, we could do better. So it is a working partnership end of the day. We're not kind of saying, we're not respecting the brand's mandate, but we're kind of saying there is a happy medium that we need to come. And if the outcome is win-win for both of us and a customer, then there shouldn't be any issues. We're not afraid of investing capital. We're afraid of investing wrong dollar in the wrong property because someone given you a peep and say, go replace all the artwork, go replace all the drapery, go replace all the, all this item. That is not the necessity. Are you using hotel specific renovation contractors that are going throughout the country? These guys are kind of living in the hotels, knocking them out, or are you hiring contractors by market? What have you found to be the best approach to renovate portfolios of your size? I think the answer is all of the above. Everything, uh, whatever you can get. Every, everything, because every market's different. Like, so, you know, we were a general contractor. We had, we built 90 ground up construction hotels so far, primarily in last 15 years. So we have a pool of subcontractors. So if it's within our reach, within, 
you know, two or 300 miles, we would do it ourselves. We have project manager, we'll hire a subcontractor. We have law and following subcontractors, so we would hire them and do it. If it's out of town and whatnot, we would hire a GC to manage it. They'll stay at the property and get it done on it. So we have used every, every different approach. There are, you know, contractor who wants to do everything mid-size to high level. And if it's a full service major renovation, then we bring in full, full not GC to say manage it this because time will kill you on your projection, guest comments, and your DCR covenants with your lender. And so renovation is one of the kind of, I would say it's a cancer if you don't get it properly taken care of in a timely manner. Because once you have cancer and you cannot get under control, it goes out from 12 months to 18 months and 20 months. And guests are saying this is horrible. Employees have to work hard to keep the place clean. And then you have workers, they're abusive to sometimes to your guests and abusive to your team members. And you just create a, so much of drama, no matter how good of GC or how good of a team it is. So I think renovation just comes with a lot of risk at the same time also. I want to transition now to like portfolio construction and how you think about diversifying your asset and product types, because a lot of people tend to just stay in their own swim lane. Like they only invest in extended stay hotels. They only do limited service hotels, or maybe they only do luxury lifestyle. You have a different approach where you have your hand in a bunch of different asset classes. I want you to walk me through why that's important to you and if there's one asset class through the next cycle that you're gonna lean more heavily on yeah so first of all i'll give you at newcrest image we have five so pre-pandemic we only had one investment New, uh, newcrest image was a hotel company development company that's the only thing we did and 2019 we bought a bank so that become a second silo but the investment was 95% in hotel, 5% in bank, even though we own 100% bank and 100% Newcrest image. So when COVID happened, we had some folks visit from Marriott and we talked about it, how bad a hotel business is. And we were tired of the hotel business to a degree because we were closed. We weren't doing revenue. Brands were like, okay, we need to start all the amenity back. We need to open up breakfast. And we're like, we can't find labor. And all this item, and they're like, is this the right place? And then you look at multifamily, multifamily, okay, it's 99% full, people are moving it, it's a great, you know, coupon pay, but you could sell at four cap, five cap, six cap, or five cap mostly, and you could borrow that from Fannie and Fair, you know, at 3%, two and a half, and so like, we're in the wrong business, and there's more buyers of multifamily than hotel, because of the labor, because you have to clean and all that, so... In 2020, we decided to say, you know what, we should sell the entire company. So we decided to sell Opto and Propco. We sold our business to Summit Hotel, the portfolio, and Opto, we sold it to Embridge or management contract. So the new strategy came in, uh, in pandemic was real estate, banking, debt fund, alternative investment, and public equities. So we're investing in five different areas today. And each of the silos have become very aggressive on their investment thesis and we have made a very good strive and made a very good disproportional of our wealth in different areas but now those silos are growing by itself so that that's a one best thing came out of covid to open our eyes and say there is other investment we could do 
but our hotel bucket is still the biggest after selling it because what we bought last year. So that's one kind of where we're investing. Now, as you talk about in real estate, where do we invest? We invest from all the way the budget. I would say Motel Six is the you know the you know bottom of it to all the way high in luxury. I would say Ritz or Waldorf or at that level of part. We would invest in every cycle of it. That's you know select service budget, mid you know mid scale, extended stay, full service lifestyle luxury. We would invest in every cycle in every brand segment because the return profiles are different and our buyer pools are different. When we buy Motel 6, we know who our buyers are. When we do luxury, we know our buyers are. And when we have our portfolio wrap for $125, we know who our buyers is because that's the institution read. So I think by last 15, 20 years, we kind of identify there is a buyer for everything. So why can we not cater to the buyer's needs on it. We could buy buy anything that we have buyer pool for swimly. And so it's a perfect match. We our job is to buy something, make it better, and then sell it. We know that there is a buyer for that and we understand that asset class. So that has given us a lot because sometimes when you say I just want to invest in extended stay, when you go look at broker, you don't find extended stay deal, you're gonna overplay or you're not gonna buy. And you're just going to sit on wait for next portfolio to come in. And we just like, we don't like to wait on sideline. We like to say, okay, what can we buy? Extended stay today? Okay, we'll buy that. Could we buy full service portfolio? Let's buy that. Could we buy select service? We'll buy that. So the thesis has been, all I want to do is when I wake up, I want to come to work. And whatever I have to do, I'll do the work. I'm not married to, I just have to do that. I have to do that. So I'm not. The culture here in Newcrest Images, we're coming to the work to have fun. And whatever I have to do, roll up my sleeve and work. We'll just work. That's it. It's not about I just work in this room and that. We don't have that freedom, or at least we have the freedom to enjoy the day and how we want to organize a day where the housekeeper doesn't have a choice. When she goes to the hotel, you got to clean 20 rooms. That's all you do. She cleans 20 rooms, goes home happily, life goes on. But we have that freedom and opportunity to make the world better by what we do and create a short-term, long-term economic impact to this country by providing employment, pay taxes, and all that. And it has given us a freedom to do what we do. And most important, we enjoy all of us doing, we're deal junkies. So we enjoy doing this part. So it's kind of said, if that makes you happy as an entrepreneur, if that makes your team member happy and gives them feel to do a deal and learn something, then it shouldn't stop you from doing anything. So that has been a thesis on it. I think there's one question you asked me, where would I invest over time? I still love the lifestyle luxury space. I think that is what the consumer is looking for. It. I think the luxury space, I'm, I'm not saying ultra luxury, but I would say the mid-level of luxury. I would call it soft brand, like Curio, Autograph Collection, Unbound Collection. I'm talking about that space because you could create your own story, you could have your own branding, and you could provide service as much as you wanted, you could charge the rate as much as you wanted, and you could do anything you wanted with the freedom. And that is where the future of consumers going to think that I want unique experience. I just don't want cookie cutter experience. And so we feel like that space has a lot more bandwidth on return on investment than just hard branded. And is the opportunity for for you guys conversions or 
buying something that already exists in that space, but making it better? We have done it all. We have, we're doing a lot of conversion to soft brand. We're building ground up soft brand. And, you know, there are up branding. We're kind of buying a brand and we're within, let's say, Marriott portfolio. We said we could up brand to do level up. Or we take them, we take them down a level down. You know, many times you've seen Rich calls and has came down to autograph collection or vice versa. And so we've seen that that, that, is, that has done very successfully. So we like to play within that space as well. But we have done it all. I mean, you know, when I talk about 300 hotels we bought and sold, you kind of, I, I would think that we kind of have done it all. Ground up, we did 95 ground up construction. We did 12 historic project, high rise up to 30 story, different market, different jurisdiction, different F&B, a lot of meeting space. We have done it all. So we've seen it all. We have converted small mom and pop, two story into a brand. We have done six story, taken a hard brand to a soft brand. So it, it kind of, we've seen it all. And so it kind of gives you a good conviction when you are about to do something. You kind of said, I could do something. And that's what we are buying today is real estate is the value. It's the real estate land and the building that you cannot buy or replace today with the cost today. Look at anything to build today is $400 square feet per cost in any market. It's insane what we used to build $100, right? If we talk about 2012, everybody was talking you could build something four-story stick bill for $85 square feet. Today, the same thing is $200 square feet. And if you're lucky, today when you underwrite any budget, you don't even know if it's if you're gonna if it's gonna finish that project at that number. So as a buyer or a seller, then a lot of hotels in our portfolio. Well, some of the hotels in our portfolio are worth more from an asset standpoint. The real estate, the replacement cost is worth more than they would be worth on an income basis. So in this environment, how do I reconcile that? Is the only way to get out of that time or do I just need to think about generating more revenue? How are you looking at it? as a seller with some hotels in your portfolio, but also at some of the hotels that you're buying in terms of justifying whether to buy it on replacement cost or income basis? So we have done a couple stuff on it. We found like, you know, we have a management company operating it. Sometimes we feel like this hotel needs a lot of love. We have done a regional owner operator say, okay, why don't you come in a partner? We'll sell you 25%. We would up premium that and get him on it, say, roll up your sleeve and work hard at it, what we did. So that's the one strategy has worked. Second one, we have looked at up-branding. We're just saying, you got to figure out somehow to say, can I do up-branding or do that something? And other scenarios we have looked at it is, is this the best use for the property? You know, we bought a one property and we converted to, we took it down from select service to all the way to budget property and made, made more money than anything else. We kept the real estate. So it started producing good cash flow and we kept the real estate. Because sometimes you could own a real estate and it doesn't produce a cash. It just looks like it's a nice branded property, but it doesn't make any money. We're like, okay, let, let's keep it to budget. It still makes the money. And if somebody ever wants to buy it, we could say you could go back to that brand ever again if it's available or any other brand. And you could try your luck at that point. But we have seen it that you really have to put a time in property. If the property is worth more, what can you do different? If you tried revenue management doesn't work, property improvement plan doesn't work, 
the next option is looking at best and use of the property. And sometimes you may not find any best and use order. You cannot do multifamily. You cannot change any brand. You cannot do office. You cannot do anything on it. You're just stuck at that point. And then we kind of say, you know what? It's time to sell. I walk away. We know that it's it's worth more today. But can I take that capital today and do something else with it? I haven't heard someone like you talk about picking a buyer for the asset when you're buying the asset in the ways that you've described it. There's been a lot of deals recently that I've seen that are very large that you really wonder who is going to be the end buyer. There's maybe like three actual groups in the entire world that could end up owning that. I want you to kind of peel back the layers into your acquisition process where you guys are talking about how you're going to sell the asset how you think about putting a cap rate on it and who you think the potential buyer pool is and how you use those decisions to determine whether you're going to do the deal or not. So you're talking about disposition strategy once we buy? Yeah, but you're you're telling me as part of your acquisition strategy, you're already thinking about who's going to buy the asset from you. And I think that's really interesting. And not a lot of people probably do that. They think about maybe what they're going to sell it for, but not who the buyer is going to be. And they just make up a cap rate anyways. Good. So this is a very good example I'll give you. We bought Starwood Hotel Portfolio, 45 hotel. Average room size was 60 room to 94 room. And some were, I think the largest was 94 room was the largest. So who would be my buyer for 60 room hotel? It's the guy who owns a Best Western, Comfort in Hampton, owner operator, who's not a Marriott approved. And we're saying, I have a perfect property, 60-room property, first-time buyer for Marriott, will help you get approved. You may not be approved Marriott. You may be approved. If you have five, six hotel, you could get approved with Marriott because you, you just have to build a story and you could be a good operator. That is my buyer. They're willing to pay you more because their dream is to buy Marriott, right? So that is the owner-operator story. We're kind of saying, okay, bingo. We have buyer for 60-room hotel. It's $5 million, $6 million deal. What we did is we talked to regional bank, 8 to 10 of them. Financing got ready, 25 to 30% down. So when we found a buyer, obviously we know through my work community, peer group we know, but we use a broker channel, obviously, just to be out there. And so we said, okay, here is why should you buy my hotel? Here are top 10 reasons to buy. Number one, if you're not Marriott, this is your perfect opportunity to get in Marriott system. It is the prestige moment to own a Marriott brand, right? It is a prestige license to get in Marriott Club. That's number one, two. Needs a PIP. You could do a PIP. Below replacement cost. It's a 60 room. It's it's within your market. It's a three-story interior corridor. It's not exterior corridor. And so we put out there lenders ready to give you. Marriott has given you 15-year license. So we guide down all the uh, all the part, and then we said con. It's operated by Embridge Management Company Large, so they have overhead cost on it. You could be on our operator. If you don't have the management fee, your cash flow is better. And so we show pros and cons to the buyer community and top 10 reason to buy our hotel. That is a success. You're just showing somebody a path that this is the way to own a property. It's like when you, you know, bank was the same way. We always had a dream of owning a bank. And how do you own a bank? It's the most complicated process because you're dealing with federal government. And 
nobody nobody has a game plan how to own a bank and so it's like how do you own a marriott right if you talk about 20 years ago marriott was the hardest way to get a franchise even 15 years ago was really hard i think last five years they have become much nimble and all that which is good you they want to keep up the quality of the owner and quality of the operator that's why marriott sustain today how good they are so I would say that is our secret recipe is understand who the buyer pool is in and why would they buy it. And so, you know, we create a war room, we create an orientation checklist. Like we, we, as soon as we sell somebody, like here is a PSA, we would say you sign a confidential agreement. We do LOI, we do PSA. Then we said, once we do that, you get a title report. Then we said, here is the war room. Here is third party report that we already done it or you have to order. You have to make a, you sign FDD, you make a franchise application, then you open a bank account, form LLC, all the step, like there is 30 to 40 checkpoints. And we tell every buyer, you may be sophisticated enough, but not, if you're not sophisticated enough, here is the way you follow the part and it will be a successful closing. So the buyer really appreciate that they have never done it. Now they take, take our checklist and copy over and over again and tell people, this is how you buy and sell. And so it's kind of, you have to nurture the buyer to say, let me teach you something part of the process. So that has given, we have earned a respect of being a good seller. Do you think anybody would want to do that? What I do 45 times that buyer? No. That's, that's the challenge. No, that, no one wants so we, to do that. Most sellers are like, you know, they're, you know, they're dicks. Like, you know, it's tough. It's contentious. It is. And it's like, who has the time? But we kind of invest that upfront time to set up the infrastructure. And then we tell our team, look, this is a idiocracy. It's the kind of a, you know, dumb and dumb version of it that you're kind of at sophisticated level, but you're dealing with unsophisticated buyer and you have to agree on to do this part. And that is a perfect marriage of transaction because no institution, no rate, no family office would want to do this. And they don't even know where to start that. And so we taken the challenge. It's like it, it's come back to the entrepreneur part of it. When I was buying the first 10 hotel, I would never get my credit card transition done the day I bought the hotel. Right. I would never get my, <laughs> I mean, this is 20 yeah. years ago, right? 20 years ago, I would, I would be buying a hotel and the buyer said, you need to change the utility, but we do it the same day. I didn't thought about you could do it, you know, so it's just and like, schedule it, what yeah. I, yeah, so it's like what I learned the first, you know, the first three to five years. I'm using it the last five years of my transaction life. All right, so let's hang here then, because a lot of what you're doing would be considered super institutional M and A. You're competing against private equity firms, but it seems like what you're also describing is there might be opportunity in the hospitality space in sub institutional both on the buy side, because maybe you're dealing with less sophisticated parties and on the sell side, because it's easier for people to break in and below the radar of institutions. Is there a way to do that though, where the numbers get big enough, where you're not just spending all this time showing someone how to buy a hotel only to make a million bucks? No, I think uh, our like we so that was one portfolio that that room size was average sixty to ninety four. We bought second portfolio average room size was one fifty. Sixteen hotel of average room size was one fifty, and we had sophisticated owner bought that, 
and we had an unsophisticated buyer who bought 150 room hotel. They were owning 80 room, 90 room, 100 room. And they're like, well, it's time for me to own 150 room. Well, we taught them how to do it. A sophisticated buyer, but he had never owned 150 room. So it's like a stepping stone. It's like, you know, when you look at once you go middle school, then you go to high school, then you go to college, then you go to work, and then you kind of said, I want to do MBA. And then you want to do PhD. So we kind of have done that kind of a roadmap. It's okay, I did it everything, but there are buyers who want to buy. Like, you know, we like today we sold four hotel and one guy bought it. Yeah, t- today we sold four hotels, one in Charleston, uh, one in uh, Youngstown, Ohio, one in Westminster, Denver, and one in College Station, Texas. So the four different buyer group different. They were different level. And the sophisticated buyer was, he was sophisticated to only his level, meaning he was operating 12 hotels, Hilton, Marriott, all that. But he never bought a courtyard. He never owned a courtyard. He only had Fairfield. But this is his time to own a 150-room courtyard. And so we helped him through it. And he really blessed us and say, thank you for helping me. Thank you for fulfilling my dream to own a 150-room courtyard because I would have never bought it. You were easy seller to deal with it. And so the way I look at it, there is a buyer for every asset. You just got to have a put a laser focus and say, how am I going to find it? That's it. That I mean, the, the recipe is there. Because if you look at on 10x, who buys on 10x? Everybody buys on 10x. And so I think the way we looked at it is once you buy real estate, as long as it's not that terribly bad, you're fine. As long as you don't have the city local issues or environmental issues, you could fix rest of it. But when you have hair on the city or environmental issues, that's hard to solve. It just takes a lot of time and effort. But if it's a physical PIP and human capital issues, that's within your power. Are there any assets in your portfolio that you would classify as never sell for whatever reason you just don't want to sell it and this is a legacy asset that we want to own forever? We have never owned anything. Everything has a price tag. Every asset has a price tag. It's like when you go to high-end store, everything is for sale. Nothing is, even car collection, every car collection is for sale. Everything in the life is for sale. So we feel like if you have collection of hotel, if it pays you price, then why? And so we believe on Cassis King. We looked at it pandemic. Our Cass King became very valuable currency. And today our cash is very valuable currency in this market. So we feel like we like to rotate asset three to five years, mostly in 12 months. And so that's how we got to 300 transactions. Today in our portfolio, the, the oldest asset we own is seven year that we build ground up. Why did you want to buy a bank? So since 2000, we started borrowing money and we would always get a SBA loan. We would never get a conventional loan. A lot of people didn't want to give conventional loan because the government guarantee was good. I'm talking about where we were mom and pop operator at that point. This is back in 95 to 2000. And so we borrowed and then started 2000, we started getting conventional loan. And then the first 10 years, we probably borrowed million dollars. We paid back. So every lender was asking us a different way to when we go ask money, they, they had different requirements, how they would ask you a question, how their package looked different or their process was different. When we do construction draw, the process is different. 
And we would say, look, we're good borrowers, just help us with it. And they're like, no, this is all I can do. I'm restricted by my loan policy or concentration or whatnot. And so we said, if we were to, if we were to become a bank owner, we would do it differently. And so that's what we did. We said, if you were to become a banker, we would become a really good successful banker because normally all the community bank or regional bank, all the bankers, they're not entrepreneur. They have never owned and operated any business. So sometimes the risk tolerance is not greatest that we do. So we are at the bank. We do hotels, subprime auto, and factoring, three business line we have. And our risk tolerance in hotel is 100%, 200%, 1,000%. We tell our bank team, like our we have president, CEO, and chief risk risk driver officer, we said, you can loan any hotel money, and we would be just fine. As long as you get 25 30% down, we can take care of the rest of it after that if you have issues on it. And they're like, well, we don't understand. We understand everything about hotel. If it doesn't work or if it doesn't make money, we know we could buy it, sell it, and life goes on because we understand this model. Or we can tell them where are they failing or anything like that. And so the true success recipe is our confidence on the banking system is we understand how to borrow and how to pay off loan. And so now when the customer come, we tell them, we understand this part. You just got to fix it or you got to manage this better expectation. And it would be fine. And so now when customer comes to us, they cannot try to fool us on construction cost or reserve or because they know that any given time we have 50 to 70 hotel that we own and operate. And so the customer really appreciate our wealth of knowledge. And most of the time they seek guidance from us as advice instead of retelling them what to do. So it's kind of a very rewarding experience that people respect our opinion because what we have done in the hotel industry. What did you think about owning a bank would be easy that turned out to be the opposite of what you had intended from the start? Regulation. It's tough. Very tough regulation. It's like everything you think it's normal course of business or you think it's okay, like we do in hotel business, everything against the law in the banking. You cannot uh, give him this much loan. If he missed a payment, if he doesn't meet the DCR, it's a breach of loan covenants. You got to do this. If he meets second time, so everything it's like I, I, the way we tell regulator, the guy's making a you know monthly payment. It's like, but he's not making money. I said, yeah, he's getting from his other property. Well, we can't have that. You need to have that hotel as a guarantee. But I said, why do you need it? He's paying dues. We know the guy. He said, no, it doesn't work that way. Banking is not that way. So it's like when you look at the, the DCR is one metric, but I said, yeah, six months, he may not be meeting DCR, but he's fine. He's paying his bills. He's maybe one-to-one, and you don't want to see one-to-one. You want a one one point two five. And we kind of said, we are okay taking the risk on it. And regulator don't like that. And we kind of said, we are okay with it as long as, you know, we're not going in a danger zone on it. So it's kind of a, every time regulator come, has come to our bank, we showed them a case study. And they have learned a lot from our bank and us. And they're like, they appreciate us now that we're teaching them something. And, you know, they're teaching us something in regulatory world that how some con artist has cheated them and everything. And we said, we're entrepreneurs. We, that's what we do every day. <laughs> so uh, thank you for sharing with us, but really good at it. So I think it has become a very collaborative process with the bank regulator. And it's become a symbolic relationship that we teach other, each other about banking and we bought our bank 2019, and every year we grow on more than what we budgeted for it. 
So we grew in pretty fast in four years. So it showed it showed the regulator that we were very competent in our understanding of the hotel business, but we're hands-on approach. We know when we loan customer money, we know what star report look like, we know where the weakness is, we know where, where they're failing. And so we we make a comments with our management team, and that has been a great success. But the borrower loves us because when we get a loan request, we're able to approve within two to four hours. When the loan officer said, this is the hotel, this is how much they're buying it, we give a term sheet within four to six hours because we understand the business. Yep. So why not double down on private lending where you don't have as much restrictions from the regulators? We have done that. Our debt fund, NI Capital that I mentioned, we have more than $300 million. Our bank is $340 million bank. Our debt fund is $300 million. Wow, there you go. That's what we did in the last 12 months, that if it doesn't fit the bank bucket, it goes in our debt fund bucket or, or vice versa. So it's been a very rewarding experience on the lending side. Because, you know, we bought, like, you know, we bought, sold 300 hotels, we bought a $3 billion. So you name it, there's more than 50 lender has taught us how we have to borrow money. And so the same experience we're using against all the borrower and making it better. So there are some private lenders out there that really have, they're like a bank. They don't want to own your asset. They have no intention of owning the asset, but some are in the same business as you. And they're perfectly fine owning the asset. In fact, that might be part of the strategy. How do you message that to potential borrowers so that they're not walking around, you know, looking over their shoulder, doing business with someone in their business? Our track record, one thing shows them. And we said, we're in business of selling something. We're not in business keeping. The instrument is you borrowed from us, you pay us the money that you agreed. If you don't pay us, we'll take it and sell it. We're not here to, we're not in business of owning it. If you want to own a business, Newcrest Image does it for a living every day. We buy asset to own it and make money and sell it. The debt fund business is strictly to make yield on our return on investment. That's the only thing we do. And if you fail, then be cooperative, help us sell it. And if you can sell it more than what you owe, you can have that money. We're only obligated what we are over on it. So we could have a good partnership if things goes wrong and you don't have a liquidity you want to sell. We could have a friendly process to sell. And only thing we're looking for is our obligation to be met, hold on it. And the borrower feels really confident on it. Look, end of the day, it's a reputation risk for us too. We're not, you know, we're we're proven institution here, entrepreneurial. We own a bank. We have alternative investment. We're in public boards we have heavy investment in public board so end of the day uh, the company that i respect and admire blackstone ethically morally that's how we also practice at the same point every time you know when you wake up in the morning you have to do the right things regardless if somebody's watching you or not watching you you have to do the right things and that is the way of living because you want to embed that culture in your family embed the same culture in your company to say we're here, we're in business. If you have cash register, it has to make money. Cash register never hands out money. But same times, we have to be ethical, honest to each other and keep everybody else honest to each other also when we do business. And so that's a simple philosophy. Philosophy, Yeah, time to time, we make a human error. 
and we corrected. We said, it's okay, we're human beings, we have to make a mistake. If you don't make a mistake, then you're hiding, you're covering up, you're lying, you're, you're doing something at that point. So we said, we love seeing a mistake and we could make each other better by seeing a mistake. But let's not cover up the mistake just to cover up a mistake. It's okay, life goes on. Like we, you know, we make a mistake on it and it's okay to acknowledge our own mistake. I asked all the guests on the podcast the same closing question, and that is, out of all the hotels that you've been to throughout the world, what is your favorite hotel? Sandridge's Bora Bora. Oh, good one. Did you stay in the overwater bungalow? Yes, I did. It was one of my unique experiences, and that hotel setting, and it's just unbelievable. That is on my list. I definitely want to go to Bora Bora. It looks stunning. It's it's a heaven. The population is very large. There's nobody there except for 30, 40 water bungalows. And their their service level is impeccable. And it's unbelievable experience. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you, Jake, for having me on this podcast. Hey, everyone. It's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Jay Warzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dovehill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dovehill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice. Mm-hmm.